This is John Lockley, and this is Mind Rolling with Raghu Marcus. Very impromptu beginning here, everybody. But uh, John is, of course, my good friend, a Sangoma shaman from South Africa. And uh, John just, yeah, go ahead. Let's start with Hi. a chant. It's something different. Hey, Raghu. Hey, John. Yeah, I'm really, I'm really excited to be on this podcast again. It's one of my favorite interviews and times with Raghu. And uh, I'm always inspired to chant, even when I'm not with Raghu. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so here we go with the chant. And um, this chant is a, a chant for strength and, and power, spiritually and in other ways. So here we go. Unamandla, unamandelavam, unamandla. Una mandla la la Una mandla Una mandela wam Una mandla Una mandla la la Una mandla Una mandela wam Una mandla Una mandla Una mandla la la Una mandla So, what I'm saying is, I'm asking for strength and um, I'm calling on the strength of Mandela and the legacy of Mandela in terms of terms of egalitarian humanity, in terms of Ubuntu, which means humanity. And I'm also calling on strength to the great spirit of Tikko to bless all of us and give us strength. And then I just did a little prayer of thanksgiving to Ram Dass and a prayer of thanksgiving to Raghu and to all of the listeners. May the roads open for you and may you connect with your vitality and your life purpose in this world and the next. Mm. Thank you. Thank you, John. Especially with what's going on, tough times around the world, and certainly we have been uh, in the United States uh, bombarded by a couple of really bad storms, hurricanes. Mm. That's why I, I, I wrote John earlier. I said, John, we better do this a little earlier because the uh, outer bands of this, as it comes on shore, as it has come on shore, is going to move into a little bit into North Carolina, and we might not be able to do this. 
and that and of course uh, you know the 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 polarization in this country as you know is, is very severe mm. so uh, thank you again for sure. really addressing that with this uh, prayer and chant so um john uh he has um written a new book called leopard warrior which is a journey into the african teachings and ancestry instinct uh, of an- ancestry instinct and dreams and uh, many of you, because uh, I've had John on a couple of times, and certainly those of you who uh, had listened to the podcast uh, may remember that John has really... There it is. Thank you. When's it coming out, by the way? The 1st of November. It'll be available in the United States. Uh-huh. So okay. Be, you uh, can probably pre-order it now. Yeah, you can yeah. pre-order by Amazon. Mm, and great. then it's going to be available... Yeah, and various so, booksellers. Yeah, yeah it's very unique. And as again, as I say, you know, many people, uh, you probably remember uh, John's amazing story of a white man in South Africa uh, becoming uh, a Sangoma shaman, which is unheard of. There was no one white before accepted into uh, this uh, um, sect, shall we say. And... Uh, not only that. Actually, no, there has. No, just to interrupt you there, oh, there, there has been. Um, but it's it's not clearly uh, documented historically. But I think um, in terms of recent history after apartheid, uh, my elders reckon that I'm one of the first. And since then, there have been other white people who have taken up the training. Right. But if we did an historical search into the early 1900s and so on, I think there have been a, a few isolated cases as well. But uh, it's not... I think mine is quite, you know, quite public. You know, yeah. I'm talking I'm talking about it, whereas in the past people didn't talk about it. Right. Um, so there's a great quote uh, from you that I wanted to just uh, start out our conversation. I knew in my heart that I had to make peace with my own dreams and listen to the ancient voice inside me, a voice that my modern Western mentors and guides would not hear. I had to be brave and take a leap of faith. I mean, an extraordinary leap of faith, really, John. And yeah. Yeah, just, just talk about that a lot. Because you there's a lot of, um, I'm sure you got a lot of negativity on both sides uh, while you were going through this process uh, with mm. becoming a Sangoma shaman. Talk a little bit about some of the obstacles and uh, so on that you experienced. And I still do experience it. It's not over yet, really? unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Uh, unfortunately, I'd like to say it's all plain sailing, but it isn't. And But we have a saying amongst the Sangwamas, and I, I want to be positive and inspirational because I think that's what the energy of healing is all about. So all I can say to you is that the Sangoma shaman is called, and each of us has got a particular calling within the medicine work. So each Sangoma that could be from the same tribe, the same family, and you can speak the same language and have the same skin color, but each person is going to use their skills and their medicine in a different way. And we have a saying that the depth of your calling in terms of the illness that you've received and that you've had to work through is also the depth of the medicine that you have in terms of healing the of healing the world and healing others. And then the second thing we always say is that 
whatever the illness is that you've had to work through is the way you're going to be able to help people in your community and in the world. So if we think of apartheid and segregation as an illness, as a curse, then this is something that I've had to work with. And also this is something that I can speak very eloquently about with passion and I can also help people to heal it because if I've gone through this in such a deep way, there's only one reason why, and that's to help bring healing to apartheid. Apartheid in English means separation. And I've written about it in the book, and I've written about a very beautiful story which I can share with the listeners, how I was training in the township for five years, and it was difficult. However, my teacher and her family showed me so much love and so much acceptance that it buoyed me and gave me the energy to continue. And I remember one particular ceremony we did. It was wild outside. The, the trees were something like they are at the moment. There was an elemental force in the air. And this elemental force seemed to also go inside my teacher, Mam Gwevu. And she was dancing and she became this lioness. And just before she went into trance, she looked at me and I looked at her and there was this feeling of knowing between us. And what that knowing was, was I wasn't being very well, well received in that particular community at that time. And there was a lot of animosity towards me because um, I'm the only, I was the only white person in the room and people were struggling to accept me. And she looked at me with compassion. I looked at her and there was just this knowingness. And then she went into this trance and she spoke so eloquently and crosser. And she shouted at the whole community. She shouted at them. And for the listeners, I just want to explain that in African culture, in particular South Africa, when a teacher or a shaman or a sangwome is shouting, it's not a sign of rudeness. It's not a sign of shame or of aggression, it's a sign of energy and passion. So it's quite acceptable for a shaman or a sangoma to go in close to a person in the community and shout as the spirits are moving through them, because it's a sign that the energy, that they're actually blessing the community with the strength of their energy and the strength of their vision. So just to be clear that it's not aggressive. However, in this time, she became this lioness and she shouted at everyone and she said, Indasika, Apa, Egazini, Ibomf, Indasika, Wena, Egazini, Ibomf, Indasika, Utringolundaba, Egazini, Ibomf, Bangapanzi, Imlajeni, Abantu, Bangleda, Tina, Apa, Abantu, Babet, Tina. Umtu, Gabantu. Abantu Omnia, she said, um, you cut my hand, red blood flows. If you cut my, if I cut your arm, red blood flows. If I cut John's arm, red blood flows. Underneath the river, all the nations of man are helping each other. Above the river, we are all fighting one another. There's only one people, there's only one red blood, and that's the blood of humanity. We are all one people. And then she said, you know, when I go to John's home, his mother and father treat me, treat me with so much love and they treat my husband with so much love. And in my own home, John, John shows me nothing but respect and love. He is 
my son. He is my adopted son. And I want all of you to respect him as that. And after that, people's eyes, you could see the whites in people's eyes as they were looking speechless upon her. And after that, things seemed to change a great deal for me. Mm. I'm still dealing with racism and still dealing with apartheid to a certain extent. But that kind of energy she really addressed in such a powerful way as the winds buffeted outside. Inside, there was this elemental force inside of her. And she drew the line and she said, that's it, mm. you know. Wow. He's my son. And it was a very powerful point for me. And, and after that, things did change dramatically. And, um, and this has become my medicine to tell people that we are all one people. doesn't matter the color of your skin. We all dream. We all have red blood. And we can all save each other in a very dramatic way physically. If someone in Ireland needs blood, and there's a Zulu man in South Africa with the same blood type, it can save his life and vice versa. If there's someone in New York City with white skin and they need a blood transfusion and there's a closer man in South Africa who can give that blood, the doctor doesn't say, is this a Muslim? Is this a black man? What's his religion? All they say is, is this the right blood type? And the nurse will go, yes. And then they do the, they do the deed mm. and the man's life is saved. Mm. So, I always like people to remember that on a very physical, dynamic level, we can save each other's lives just with our blood. And also when it comes to spirituality, we can save one another. I mean, in Africa, so many African people are following Christianity now. And that came in from the white colon, um, uh, um, colonizers. However, there's no judgment. They want to follow Christianity and they're doing it with a lot of passion. And that's a sign as well that we can help each other spiritually as well. So now I'm bringing these very deep shamanic systems in terms of honoring our ancestors. I'm bringing it into the Western world. And that is correct as well. Mm. You, you know, <laughs> I mean, to show how the, the, the fundamental ground that is so much a part of every mystical tradition from the one that you're in and uh, the one that I come from with Ramdas and so on. And in fact, one day, Neem Karoli Baba Maharaji said, the same blood flows through all of our veins. There is mm -hmm. only one. <laughs> I mean, it's just, right? It's just what you, yeah. what she said to you in that outburst, what she mm -hmm. said to everybody in that outburst was yes. exactly the same, uh, the, the same message. Just, uh, it's so great. So, uh, John, I, I have, a, of course, a, a big affinity to uh, what you went through with the, uh, with the Zen Buddhists in uh, okay. Korea and so on. And um, I, I want to talk a little bit about that because uh, th there was some, there's some great things in, in there that, uh, and especially, uh, the premise of what am I, who am I, right? Mm. What's my purpose or what is the purpose of life? You know, the basic questions that are addressed, you know, were addressed with, with you, with the, with the Zen um, monks. And, and I like this too. Why do I eat every day? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
I love that. Uh, God. Um, so, um, so everybody out there, uh, again, I'm gonna. By the way, I'm going to put on the um, show notes page on Mind Rolling on BeHereNowNetwork.com. Uh, there'll be, of course, a, a link to pre-order John's book, uh, and also um, a link to the previous podcast that we did with John because we covered a lot of territory and and certainly his. Uh, basic, uh, the biography of uh, John's journey was covered. Um, but, um, but in this book, there's a little bit, you know, a lot more detail about your, particularly, uh, your particular experiences. Um, and in one, uh, just let me, uh, so John had, so there was one um, monk, De, De Sun Sanim, right, was your teacher at that time well there was two actually but my main teacher was was actually the, a good friend of, of Trudy Goodman and he's a Zen master Subong from Hawaii he was half Chinese and half mm -hmm. Korean and so he knew Trudy Goodman um, many years ago so that was Subong Subong was was the man who originally he was called Modungsening and he came to South Africa to lead retreats in the in the late 90s and his teacher was the legendary Zen master Sung San Sun Sa, who brought Korean Zen to the West. Right. And um, and he comes from the Chogi order in, in South Korea. And uh. he has this temple. He, he's in charge of, or he was in charge of Wagi Sa, which was uh, quite an old temple in, in, in just outside Seoul. Mm. I, I did my three-month retreat. I went over and I got to meet him. Let me read a little bit of, uh, you know, because this brings up something that's really interesting. Uh, you asked, uh, when you had an interview, you asked, uh, how can I help people? Do you remember from the Yes, book? I asked our Sung San that, so yeah. Zen Master Sung San, yeah. yes. And he, and he mimicked you, right, and said, how, how can I help people? <laughs> he squealed in a high voice. And then he turned to the monk. So they really, he really made fun of you. The whole he room did. was in an uproar. Um, and then he, you say here, then his voice and face changed to stone. He looked directly at me, pointed at my stomach with his stick and shouted, you have no center. How can you help this world? First, you must develop a strong center, then helping this world possible. Okay. And, uh, you know, that, that was a yeah. sort of a first foray. This is, you were very young, right at the time. How old were you around this time? I was 22 years old. Yeah. So I'm 24 years old. And I came by to see Neem Karoli, but I, you know, there's all these parallels that when I read the book and I go, oh, Jesus, same thing happened to me in a different way. <laughs> so I, I'm sitting in front of them and he says, uh, are you married? And I was not married. I was not with anybody, with nothing. Of course, not long after, within a year, he was marrying me and, and my first wife, Parvati. And uh, so I said, no, I'm not married. And, and I said, I just want to marry God, which was pretty much the same as I just want to help people. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Burst of laughter, a bunch of Indian people around. Look at this guy. He wants to marry God, you know, kind of a thing. <laughs> he made a lot of fun out of me in that <laughs> moment. So um, which is the archetypical thing, you know, especially... Um, well, we can't call you a Westerner, but we we can say that in terms of just starting out on the path, we all have that that real burning desire to you know help people to 
to become a monk, to become, you know, one with God, you know, become enlightened and, you know, and all of it. And uh, I think, yeah, talk a little bit about the, the, uh, the naivete that we have when we first get on the path. And, and what I loved here was the fact that he pointed it out immediately without a center you're not, there's nothing that you're going to be doing for yourself or for anybody else. Yes. Um, I mean, that's something that, that I keep coming back to actually, whenever I'm struggling on the road, um, I'll keep coming back to those original teachings. And then I, I have to energize my physical body and, um, which means doing Qigong exercises or going to the gym or, or running or just, just feeling my body. And, and, and I think that's a very important thing because so often I come across people who want to help the world, which is wonderful, but they're struggling so much in their own lives and with their own body. So the first thing is we have to bring the teachings home. And bringing the teachings home means to bring them literally to your own body. So if I'm talking about, and there's a group of people, um, often when I'm doing a public talk, I will get people to dance. Mm. And I'll get them to shake their bodies. And the reason is, is because we have to energize the umbilini, we call it, which is the kundalini energy. We have to energize that and get that to move inside of us. And then we can really activate our spiritual power. But if we're just sitting quietly and we're just saying in a naive way, I want to help the world. But inside of us, there's this depression and there's this energy that's stuck. How can we help anyone? So I always keep going back to that original teaching that he gave me, and um, and it's still very much alive in me today as it was over twenty or thirty years ago. Mm, yeah, and I think, and that's uh, we share a lot on on this podcast and on the network mm. the things that people need to do on a day to day basis to develop that center and be connected mm. to that deep part of ourselves that enables us to have that kind of a balance in our lives and enables us to not uh, fall into our habitual patterns, that you, which is, you know, quite easy to do on a day-to-day basis. So, um, yeah, that's something I think is really important. Very, yeah, very. Yeah. And I think even more, more nowadays than ever before, Raghul, because people are, we are so glued to screens. We're so glued to our mm. iPhones and our, and our computers and, and this cellular existence, which has also a creative and beautiful side, so I'm not um, going to diminish it in any way, but it does mean that we have to be a little bit more careful and discerning about how much energy we're putting in front of the TV or the screens and then going outside and and putting our feet on the ground and and shaking our hips and and looking at the birds. Yeah, right. Right. Yeah, we have a lot of imbalance. There's no doubt about it. And I'm I'm a primary uh, offender, personal offender, with the amount of time I'm spending on computer and so on. Um, mm. And there's another beautiful little thing, another message that uh, you got that I, I read about in the book that Subang shouted at you at one point. Um, you are not special. None of us are. I'm just doing the Zen master job. And you're just doing the student job, okay? <laughs> Isn't that something? I, I think um, I think that's another important teaching for everybody uh, in terms of uh, the the the, um, the Buddhists would would talk about it in terms of self cherishing 
and yes. self, just generally being self-involved and, yeah. uh, you know, waking up and you're in the middle of your movie, as Krishnadas calls it, uh, and, and you just carry on in that way. And, and you know, tremendous attachment to, mm. uh, to your role and, and so on. And, mm. uh, yeah, what did you get out of that when he talked to you about that? Jeez, I got so much out of that. I mean, that was such another pivotal moment for me. And actually, that was, that was a, on my 21st birthday. That oh. was actually the day before my 21st birthday. Um, so it was a very big present for me. And um, it was interesting because I remember it so clearly. I remember the interview. I was just leaving his room and and he always used to make me really nervous because he had this very strong energy and and I was kind of shy. And and as I was leaving and this, you know, really nice blonde hair and this big bandana and, you know, <laughs> I suppose I was just young, like any young 21-year-old thinking I was cool. And, and when he said that to me, you're not special, it hit me really hard, but... When I went onto my cushion and I was meditating afterwards, it also brought me a sense of euphoria because it gave me a sense of I'm not responsible for everything. If, I'm, if you're not special, that also means that you are not responsible for the state of the world. Mm. You're not responsible for every single thing that happens. Because what he was talking about is radical egalitarianism. We are all equal. And I felt it so deeply because... Afterwards, when I got my own calling, or I had my calling at that stage in terms of the Sangoma calling, I could really see after that weekend that everyone has a particular gift, just like all the flowers are different but equally beautiful, and that what each person has to do is really embrace their gift, and not embrace the gift in the sense that I am better than you, but embracing your gift in such a way that you are connecting with your specialness, but also not standing on someone else. So I found that sense of equality and egalitarianism, which his statement seemed to bring up inside of me, I find it very liberating. So that, that sense of you're not special is also very liberating. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> very much so. Um, mm -hmm. And, and uh, another part of, of uh, what I got out of the book uh, related to your time, as uh, studying, practicing Zen Buddhism. Uh, the, and this goes back to the who am I? What am I? Why do I eat? Yes. <laughs> the don't know. The don't yes. know mantra. I think that, do you know that, uh, I don't know if you know this uh, uh, Zen um, monk named Bernie Glassman. Have you ever heard of Bernie Glassman? No, no, I don't oh, think I have. Oh, you should, no, you should no. check him out. He's fantastic. Um, he's a good friend of Ramdas's, Bernie Glassman. Yeah, he recently had a stroke and he came through it. Uh, he's he's okay now, and uh, he his big thing is yeah his big mantra is that it may be a, a little bit of a different uh, contextualization, but is don't know, you know, in other words, stopping the mind of. Absolutely. There's a there's a reason. There's a solution. There's a there's an intellectual understanding of uh, mm. of all these different concepts, or or in fact your own of the mystery. And there's the the don't mm. knowness. Talk about that don't knowness that you. <laughs> that don't knowness, I think, is is the root of all spiritual faiths. It's the root of all mystical traditions and. For the listener, I'm actually at the moment in Dublin, 
because this is my ancestral home where my mother's from. And I was very fortunate to to go to see Eckhart Tolle on, on Saturday. Uh-huh. And he, he gave a wonderful seminar, a lovely talk. You could say it was a Dharma talk. And he came back to the essence of when you're sitting and meditating, you can ask yourself the question, what am I? Don't know. And what is that don't know? It's not, he says, if you give yourself an answer of what am I, he says, you've missed the whole point. <laughs> So when you ask yourself, what am I, you're asking the absolute essence of your being, what am I, or what is this? And there's no real answer to it. And that question or that pause or that space brings you deeper to to that place of wisdom inside yourself. And I remember when I was in South Korea and the Zen masters were teaching us this, and they said it's very important that don't know also doesn't become don't care. Mm. because people can go either way they can you can ask them a question after a while we'd go for interviews with i'd go for interviews with subong and and he would say the question of why do you eat every day and i'll say i don't know sir and i remember one day i was just exasperated i was exhausted it was snowing outside i hadn't slept much because of all the meditating and he said why do you eat every day and I said, I, I don't know, sir. I don't know. You know, and even the tone of my voice was like, I don't know. You know, like, like, that's yeah. it. You know, I, I don't know. Don't ask me anymore. You know. Yeah. And then he shouted at me again, <laughs> lots of shouting, and he says, "Make sure your don't know doesn't become don't care." Uh-huh. Really? <laughs> because in that moment, I was just exhausted. I was like, "That's it." You know. Yeah. So screw it. <laughs> Yeah, so I think that that exploration of what is this, what am I, it's the most powerful existential question that human beings have been working with since the beginning of time or since we started questioning this consciousness going through us. Mm. So what is this consciousness? What is this aliveness? What is this electrical flow that makes our hearts beat? What is that? My answer is I, I don't know, but I'm going to explore that with everything I've got. And when I'm exploring that deeply, I'm looking at the seals swimming in the sea just in front of us here. I'm looking at the birds who are just in front of me on the apple tree. And the two of us become one. Beyond language, beyond being clever, to the place that the Buddha speaks about, which is, I am not clever, but I'm shining. Mm. And in the Kosa system, we talk about the root of this work they call Umsebens Ukukanya. This work of honoring our ancestors and connecting with our humanity is what we call Kanya. It means shining. It's the shining work. Mm. So the way we shine as human beings is through asking the self, ourselves this question. What is this? What am I? Mm. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> well, you know, uh, I'm sure you're you're familiar with Ramana Maharshi, a great saint from India in the last century, yeah. and of course he, at 16 years old, laid. He said, "I cannot go on one more second not knowing what is this, who am I?" You know, all of these same questions. So he laid down, and he said, "I am not moving until I know this, and I, I don't care if I die." And who? And he kept repeating to himself, "Who am I?" Who am I? Who mm-hmm. am I? And he became realized. 
I mean, some level of realization that I think became as 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 it went along, of course, m- much more integrated. Uh, but uh, at 16 years old, that's that kind of commitment he had to that question was extraordinary. I mean, of course, these great beings have the courage of, uh, you know, of a herd of elephants or something. I don't know what uh, what the analogy is, but uh, I've, of course, met uh, a few of them. And uh, so, again, another incredible parallel of, uh, mm. you know, everything that uh, we're talking about in all the different traditions. And, and that's a great thing I love about you, John, you know, having gone through the Zen Buddhist uh, training and so on, and then um, then back in, in Africa and becoming a, a Sangoma shaman. Uh, because we have talked about this in the last podcast, in, in a previous podcast, I don't think we need to go into it because you did tell in detail that that whole story. But there, there, mm. I guess it just popped up in my mind. What was the... Uh, I'm always interested in, in the individual qualities of a great being. And uh, and I know that was so out of these two Zen um, monks, uh, one of them that you actually went on that retreat with uh, later on mm-hmm. uh, for three months uh, was a, a quote unquote you quote in the book as saying an enlightened being, mm-hmm. and uh, and then your own teacher uh, who you spent all that time with, of course, was, was also a great being. How do you, can you just talk about the qualities of, of each of them and where they, uh, mm. dissected and, uh, and how they, um, those qualities, how they affected you in different ways or in the same ways? Yes. Very similar, actually. Um, very similar. My heart goes out to my Kosa teacher, Mamwebu, because in, in, sadly, um, because of the situation in the world in terms of the way African spirituality is, is being treated, she d- doesn't have the same support that my, my beloved Zen masters had in terms of this temple and this, all these, um, these people and um, supporting the temple. But nevertheless, these qualities that I found common is the quality of service and the mm. quality of, of, of humanity and of humility. So those two teachings in terms of service and humility, those two qualities are so common between those three, you know, the two Zen masters and my teacher, Mam Guru. It's all about what can I do to help? And it's not about I, my, me. It's about us. So you are suffering, John. Let's sit and talk about that, and then I'll give you some help. And then you go off and you work with the herbs, do your dreams, and come back. So this process of working together, not as an individual, I found very powerful. And this process of being in service to one another and being in service to humanity and the sense of I am not special, the sense of humility which my teacher, my Kosa teacher has very strongly, and also these two Zen masters, they have such a, a sense of humility about them, but not in, a, in an obsequious way, but really in a sense of, of just being quiet and being able to look at a situation with clear eyes, not with lots of chatter, not with lots of words. 
And because my teacher, my closer teacher and I, we, we were trying to understand each other because she doesn't speak English and I was learning Kosa, often there would be almost this telepathic communication where we'd both be quiet and we would just look at each other. And the same thing happened with my Zen interviews. You would be asked a riddle like, what is the sound of one hand clapping? Or there's a number of riddles you'd be asked. And you would just look at the Zen master. I'd just look at Subong. And there'd be this moment of quietness. And the same thing happened with his teacher, whose English wasn't that great, but he was doing a good job. We would just look at each other and he would shout <laughs> or he would say something. But there was a quality of spaciousness. And this is what Eckhart Tolle speaks about a lot. This quality of spaciousness, of just being quiet. And as he said on Saturday, listening to the spaces between the words. So I had to do that with my closet teacher because of, the, of, of having to understand the language. And it's not just the language, it's the energy behind the words. And I think in the English language, if people are very eloquent, sometimes, sometimes we need to learn to listen and give space between the words to feel what is really being said behind them. Mm. So that quality of service and humility and spaciousness, those three qualities mm. I found from these teachers. <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, I would uh, say the same thing in my own experience. Mm -hmm. uh, one other quality sitting around in Karoli Baba was no time and space. You were not under the uh, pressure of thinking past, present, or future. There was not. You were really just in the moment. It was total in the momentness. And, uh, and one of the outcomes of that was um, absolutely not thinking about yourself, which we walk around doing all the time. So to be in that presence and, and there is no, you're not thinking about, of course, if there's a, a question and answer, you're answering as yourself and so on, but you're not mm. hung up, you're not sticking you know, the way that we stick to everything that's in our heads and comes out of our mouths, it's such a pleasure to take a vacation from that. That's the truth. Yeah, um, that's, that's really true. I agree with you, yes. Um, so one thread throughout the book, not just throughout the book, through all of our conversations that we have, one mm. major thread um, uh, mm. is, without doubt, dreams. Yes, and the way that uh, in, you, in particular, have your your a lot of your life's predilections have been through your dream life, and yes, uh, and I know you stress the importance of it, and uh, just talk a little bit about that and what it's meant to you and how it's directed you in a, in a very deep, deep way. Uh, thanks, thanks, Raghu. It's I always like to talk about dreams because, you know, when we're working with dreams, it's such a big area. But what I could say is when we're really dreaming, we are learning the language of the soul. The language of the soul is comes through in the language of dreams, the language of poetry, the language of rhythm, the language of art. It's not through the English language or the Kosa language. The language of dreams is that language which touches to the very core of our humanity. And when people are not dreaming or they're not understanding their dreams, then we say in South Africa, amongst the Kosa and the Zulu and other Sangoma tribes, we say, 
they are not connected to their soul, then that means that the, the people are in danger themselves and also they're putting their community in danger because did you get that? I think it was a pause there. Yeah, yeah, it's okay. <laughs> okay, so when we are really dreaming, we are connecting to our soul, we are connecting to our spirit, and then we are connecting to our life, our life essence. So part of my job is to help people to dream again and understand their dreams, not in a psychological way as such, but really working with their own soul, with their own spirit. Because when you're doing that in a very deep way, then you are connected to the stream of humanity. And in that stream, you're connected to the dream time. And in the dream time, there is no past, present or future. There's just this moment. Because we always say that every spiritual tradition will say that we come from, we come from the dream time. And when we die, we're going to enter the dream time. So it's very important that while we are alive, at least for certain moments during the week, we can remember our dreams because then we are connected to that immortal side of ourselves, which is always connected to the dream time. So that part of our spirit is always connected to that place of infinity, that place of immortality. And when you're connected to that source or that matrix, then you've always got that reassurance, that nourishment, and then you can help your community and you can help your, you can just bring through more consciousness into your daily life. Hmm. What do you, I'm sure that when you, you have your retreats and so on, and you do, of course, this is definitely a, a main thread of your teaching, hmm. but there aren't, I encounter people all the time who, who say, I can't dream, or not I can't dream, I don't dream. And then I say to them, everybody dreams, it is going on <laughs> all the time. You are not remembering your dreams for one reason or another. How do you address that with people? Because many people do not remember their dreams, or they certainly go through phases. I, I know I go through phases where they're extraordinarily vivid, and mm. and in the book you do talk about the, the, the three different um uh, I don't call it levels of dreams, and one of them is 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 one that uh, you feel it in your body, and you you know there's a question as to whether it's in this plane or 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 the dream plane. It's so powerful, and um, but what how do you what do you say to people who who tell you I I just don't remember my dreams and I I don't know how to um, nurture that remembrance. Um, well, the first thing to say to someone is that everyone dreams like what you just said. So it's important to reassure the person that that's something that they can connect to. And the most important thing for each person is to have the will or intention to want to remember your dreams. Mm. So I'll give an example. In the Sangoma family that I'm connected to and my colleagues, dreaming is so important for us that we will give time each day for for us to remember our dreams. Hmm. So it's like it's like drinking water. It's so it's such a vital part of, of our existence that we will remember our dreams because it's important. So I can say to any of the listeners who are struggling that firstly, don't berate yourself, don't worry, 
that every human being has a natural ability to work with dreams and remember their dreams. The first thing you have to do is just acknowledge that you're struggling to remember. And then the next thing to to have that intention in your mind that you really want to remember your dreams and then make space in your life to remember those dreams. So to make space would be to get a, a pen and paper and get a notebook and have that next to your bed. And when you wake up or at some point during the day to just write down anything that you can remember from the dream space. So it could be an emotion, it could be a sense of excitement, it could be colors, it could be anything from that dream time period, and then you write it down. And um, it's a, like a kind of a meditation without giving it a special name or giving it a special space. Just giving yourself some time to allow your spirit to feel that time when you were asleep. That's the most important. And uh, in the book you say, and I think this is a, a good addition to what you're, what you're saying now in the podcast, the more we connect to our own spirit, the more we can connect to that part of us that lives in the dream time, the part mm -hmm. of us that is immortal and perpetually changing and growing, becoming more connected to, and of course I cannot pronounce it, utikto, Tikpo, the great spirit or the creator. <laughs> uh, close. Uh, the more we can be connected to the great spirit. And uh, I think that that, which you, you know, you, your mentioning of this in the book and us talking about it, it, I think everybody out there, this does give you an idea that the nurturing of this is a gigantic uh, method into connecting with that uh, soul spirit uh, inside of us and, uh, mm. and very, very much worthy of the practice. So um, I appreciate that. And, and this is such a major threat throughout John's life and throughout, and of course, when you read this book, you'll, you'll see that it's extraordinary. I mean, the, your dreams, um, your dream life is, um, uh, and your remembrance of it is extraordinary, actually. I, I must say that to you. <laughs> Thanks, Raghu. But I also need to say that it's something I've worked on a lot, you know. Mm. Um, so it's like I could give I give the the listeners um, a bit of a taste of this. To be a let's say um, a sangoma means to be a professional dreamer. So I'm a professional dreamer. <laughs> but when I'm saying dreamer, I don't mean in a poetic. Well, I can mean a poetic yeah. way, but also I'm talking about in a prophetic way. To be a professional dreamer also means to be a prophet. To to see things which come to pass and to write them down and notice them. And it's a particular kind of gift. And it's the same gift, like the gift of being a musician, for example, or the gift of being a poet or of being a writer or an artist. Any of these gifts you have to work on, you have to work at a great deal. And um, I look at my teacher, for example, Mam Gwevu. She's a great dreamer as well. However, just like myself, she's had to really work hard at that gift. Mm. So um, it didn't just, I mean, it has just happened in the sense that I get these amazing dreams. However, I will also write them down and I've kept a dream journal for over 20 years. Mm. And um, so I meditate and work on the dreams. And I'll tell you why, Raghu, and I write about this in the book. I look at my dreams because my dreams have become some kind of they give me a, a pattern or a pathway in terms of living my life. 
So I've got many instances where I'll dream about going to a place before I go to a place. So um, I dreamt about coming to Ireland and working here many years before I actually did. I dreamt about working in New York City before I even came to America. So before I'd go to a place, I would be called to that place in the dream time first. And the same thing happened to me with Hawaii. As you know, um, Raghu invited me to meet Ram Das last year. And before I did, I had these very strong dreams about swimming with turtles under the water. Swimming with turtles. And it's a very particular kind of Hawaiian dream. And what actually happened in real life, I did go to Hawaii and I did swim with turtles <laughs> and I did meet Ram Das. And I also met with traditional healers in Hawaii who could help me understand these dreams that I was having about Hawaii. Mm. So the reason why I work so strongly with these dreams, because they help me to track my road in terms of my living road. Mm. They help me to navigate my spirit in the waking state. Mm. Beautiful. <laughs> Beautiful. Uh, there's another um I think very, very important uh, uh, mention in this book that is something that we talk about, and in particular Ramdas and I, and at these retreats that you that you mentioned. Um, and in the book, you say, "I constantly struggle to balance the two different parts of me: the spiritual and the mundane." Uh, you know, there's much more around that, but just that very, very statement. And uh, um, we talk about, and Ramdas particularly, of course, talks about being able to navigate your life not just on one plane. You have to nav navigate more than one plane at the same time, and that is extraordinarily difficult. It is uh, the essence of, of, of the work we have in this incarnation. Maybe you can talk a little bit about it, John. Yes, and such a powerful, yeah, such a powerful thing you've just said there. And um, in South Africa, we have the saying of, of walking the two worlds. As Sangomas, we have to work, walk the two worlds, which is the world of the dreaming and the world of the living. Because each Sangoma has this gift of connecting with ancestors in their dreams, but then they have to also walk with their communities in the waking state. And that is the, the biggest journey, is to balance those two worlds. And now in my particular case, I've actually had to walk the three worlds, because the mm. third, for me, is actually navigating the world between indigenous Africa and the Western world. And for me, that's actually the hardest. And that's sometimes what brings me to a place of almost breaking point because it's a different language and it's a different way of seeing and a different, everything is so different. But that's also part of my job is to bridge, is to help people connect with their indigenous spirit. Mm. So I see that as part of my calling. So it's it's balancing three worlds. That's and your social name though too, right? Your yeah, name means Yeah, Daba. Yeah. It means the messenger. Yeah. <laughs> And I, I really um, love the fact that you speak to Ram Das about this because in some ways, um, and I don't want to be presumptuous, but in some ways I would see 
that's something that Ram has had to do as well, is balance the three worlds, because he he lived in the ashram for, so, for, for a number of years in India, and then he was called to bring some of this medicine or bring this powerful medicine to America. So that's uh, really balancing the three worlds, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Mm. There's a, you know, we're, we're, we're coming to a place where I, I definitely want to get a, a little bit more uh, practice in here with you in the podcast. I always love to do that with you. Yeah, uh, sure. There's a, there's a little phrase in the book that, um, God, I found it so penetrating. I, I just, uh, it just resonated with me in a very powerful way. The rhythm of truth. Just you probably don't even remember. I don't know where I picked it up, but I picked it up. It's in the book, John. I assure you. Yeah. <laughs> the rhythm of truth. So just that the rhythm is the basic um, foundation for many of the practices that you teach and that you that you do yourself. Mm. And and of course they are for us as well. And uh, when you add in truth. And you, you come up with the phrase, the rhythm of truth. What are we talking about? What is the rhythm of truth? And how, and, and I'd love to segue into a real a rhythmic practice from there. So the rhythm of truth is the rhythm of the universe. Everything is moving to a particular sound or harmonic. Everything's about sound and harmonics. And that's really what the whole of the living world is moving towards it's a particular kind of rhythm. So if you're looking at the animals and you look at the birds, all of those animals are not working with the English language or the German language. They're working with a particular kind of rhythm inside themselves. And you see the way they are moving, the way they are flying. There's a, always a rhythm going through everything. So with the rhythm of truth, I'm talking about a particular kind of harmonic that the whole of the natural world moves towards it's the it's the rhythm of the universe and it has a particular kind of harmonic or sound and i know in the yogis they talk about the sound of aum um, and for me i see this rhythm because if you're observing nature and you're observing animals you'll see that they are working with another kind of rhythm so birds who are flying there's a rhythm of flight um, the creepy crawly creatures the ants They've all got this particular rhythm of movement. You look at the leopard, and I speak about the book in terms of leopard warrior, because the leopard, when you're really exploring the leopard, the leopard stalks, and it waits, and it pounces, and the leopard has two particular rhythms, the rhythm of resting and the rhythm of stalking and pouncing. Two or three main kinds of rhythms. So like any animal in terms of the cat family, there's lots of resting, there's lots of quiet, there's lots of patience. And then there's another energy of movement, of stalking, of tracking. So with us as human beings, we have the same. And the animal world is teaching us. And we have to be aware of how it's teaching us. So in particular, the leopard which is a very noble creature and many traditional healers in South Africa and Africa work with the element of the leopard because the leopard is reminding us about our own intuitive intelligence. It's reminding us about always dancing between the world of spirit and the world of man, between the world of nature and the world of, of, of man. Um, and 
it's perpetually moving and dancing. So the leopard has a particular rhythm the way it's moving. And as it's moving through the earth, it's absorbing information. And it's taking in information. And it's listening with its whole body. You watch a leopard when it's moving. It's listening with its ears. But it's also listening with the hair on its back. And it's listening with its tail, with its whole spine. And it has a particular kind of movement and rhythm, the way it's doing it. So the same thing for human beings. If you really want to hear the rhythm of truth, just listen. Mm. And if you want to know the truth of another culture or people and you don't understand their language, just listen. Because you will understand the truth in what they are saying without understanding the language just by feeling their energy. And truth has a particular kind of rhythm or resonance. And this is where it's very important for people to work with teachers who have got a good integrity and a good reputation because they will start to learn this rhythm of truth. So I was very lucky to work with these great Zen masters who have that particular kind of resonance of truth about them. The same with my teacher, Mam Gwevu, and the same with Ram Das and Krishna Das. When, when Krishna sings, Krishna Das, there's a particular harmonic in his voice. And you just want to cry or you feel elevated and you just, everyone is like, oh. and the same thing with Ram Das. When Ram is speaking and he's struggling and it doesn't matter because when he says something, and his face is opening and his eyes are opening and there's a rhythm of truth in his whole being. And there wasn't one person moving in a delegates of over 300, mm. you know, yeah, <laughs> because yeah. there's a particular kind of mm. harmonic as he's speaking. You feel this truth in your own body. Mm. So the rhythm of truth is feeling through your spine mm. and listening listening with your whole being, not just with your ears, but your whole being is listening and you're feeling this rhythm. Mm. <laughs> okay, now you got to do a little rhythm meditation here to end our chat. Okay, great, Ram. Um, Ram, I mean Raghu. <laughs> but I'm thinking of Ram. Ram, um, Ram, by the way, is we're talking about the eternal truth when you speak of Ram and then, of course, yeah. there's the servant of that eternal truth, Ram Das. <laughs> Ram Das, that's right, thank you. So, in order for us to be servants of the eternal truth, we have to listen to that eternal truth. And the way we start to listen is to just bring your awareness inwards and just feel your own heartbeat. And if you're struggling, you can just bring your hand into your heart. And you just bring your hand into your heart and you feel your own heart beating. Just take a second, breathe in, stretch, stretch into your spine, sit up straight. Breathe out. Do that a few times, so breathing in through your nose. Breathe out through your mouth. All the way down into your feet. Maybe stamp your feet a few times. Breathe out, just let it go, stamping those feet. And then one more time, breathing in through your nose. Breathing out through your mouth. Feel the wind as you're breathing out. 
Ah, there's my old friend, my heartbeat. Ah, there you are. How are you, my friend? So your first relationship is with yourself, but in a gentle way, not in an egotistical way, just a very gentle way of greeting, greeting your own heart and go, hello. Ah, you're really beating. You really like chatting to Raghu, don't you? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, it's a nice feeling, hey? So you feel the rhythm of your heart, feel the playful energy. Ah, there you are, my heart. And then what you need to do, or what I suggest you to do, is to breathe into the spaces between your heart. So my heart beats, dish, and then I breathe into the spaces between each beat and feel, just feel the spaciousness. Feel that spaciousness between each of your heartbeats. And breathe into that space. Keep holding that space inside of you and keep breathing into that space between each of your heartbeats in a playful way, in a relaxed way. And accepting your heart is doing a good job Maybe you're working long hours, maybe you're struggling, whatever your stress is, just thank your heart. Say thank you. You're doing a great job. And as you're breathing into the space between each of your heartbeats, you can also light a candle at some point. And you can breathe in the energy of the candle, the energy of that light into your being because the candle and that light is reminding you of your consciousness because the consciousness that we are that we inherit that we are given as a gift is a light is our shining is our kanya and we have to breathe that in and be aware that that is our essence that is who we are and bad behavior and And all the kind of shadow side of being human is something that we have to work through. But the essence of who we are is that candle. And I'm just going to chant to that. And the chant I'm going to sing is I call Umoya. Umoya means my spirit. So in Africa, we talk about the first ancestor as being the sun. And the sun is that state of illumination, which is represented by the candle. So our first ancestor is that shining quality of consciousness, which we all inherit, and many of us forget. And as you're breathing into the spaces between each of your heartbeats, I want you to breathe in that consciousness of the candle and accept who you are and your mistakes and just breathe into that candle and that essence and call on the great spirit and the great mystery to help you to shine in the best possible way, not just for yourself, but for all of life. Oh, my God.
through your body feel the spark of fire in your heart and as your heart is beating and as the electricity is flowing through your fingers know that you are connected to your consciousness to the seed of your of the great spirit thank you thank you john so beautiful <laughs> so spacious lovely always lovely hanging out <laughs> with you absolutely so everyone john lockley thank you so much for thank being you. here on mind rolling on the be here now network go to be here now network.com and go to uh the mind rolling page where we're going to have uh john's uh the show notes and all of the links so that you can uh, we're going to John has a wonderful website. Is it what is it, John? Exactly. It's uh, it's johnlockley.com. It's okay. just my name. Yeah, I just so, thought so that'd be easy. easiest. Yeah. L O C K L E Y. Mm -hmm. And um you'll be able to connect with him and also uh he's doing you'll be doing some retreats here in America this fall, the end of two thousand eighteen. Yes. Oh, seventeen. <laughs> seventeen <laughs> that's right, ourselves yes. here. And yes, uh, um, yeah, I'll be going to Portland um, in the beginning of October. I'll go to Portland, and then I have—I'll uh, be going to Florissant, which are in, in, in Colorado, where I'll be doing a retreat. Mm. And then I'm going to LA to the Insight Meditation Community with Trudy Goodman oh, in LA. And um, and then I'm going to Boulder, Colorado, to Sounds True, and doing some work in Boulder. And that's where the official launch of the book is going to be on the first oh, of November. Great. And then I'm going to Santa Fe. Oh, also to so all of this will be on John's site. We'll put some of it up ourselves and obviously the link uh, because you must uh, help out here and pre-order the book. That'll go a long way to uh, getting even more uh, awareness out there for this uh, really unique and wonderful book from John, Leopard Warrior. John, well, Thanks, we're gonna, we'll do this again sooner than later. Thank you, y'all. We'll see you next week on Mind Rolling.